0: Uh, Father, I, I thank you for this group. I thank you for this family at Redemption Church. I thank you for a, a time to come together and to worship you and, and to worship you with uh, with singing and with dancing and with laughter and with a lot of love. Um, Father, I pray that this morning in, in all that we are, are doing here that you would cause us to uh, pause, that you would cause us to recognize that you would like open up the eyes of our hearts so that we could recognize and see and begin to comprehend and understand your love for us. And Lord, that we would see you as you really are and that we would see ourselves for who you see us as and that you would change us. I pray that you will say what you want to say in the next few minutes to each one of us, that your Holy Spirit would would speak to each one of us as you will, and and just move us to know Jesus Christ more fully. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, this morning we're jumping into John chapter 13, uh, as we continue through the Gospel of John. Uh, And in this passage, we're going to hear John's account of Jesus washing uh, the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. Now, maybe you're familiar with this passage. It's a pretty well-known scene. Uh, maybe you already know it's a picture of like servant leadership as an example of humble service. Maybe you already know some of the lessons that are implied from this passage. But sometimes I think familiarity can also lessen our understanding, right? It can lessen the impact we know that we should love and that we should serve like Jesus, but but how often? Honestly, do we choose not to do it, even intentionally? Not just all the unintentional times, even intentionally, knowing we should serve and love like Jesus, how often do we choose not to? And why would we choose that way? I think maybe we can so easily choose to ignore Jesus' example because we are overfamiliar. And maybe being overfamiliar, we've forgotten what is at the root of this story. And that's Jesus' great love for us, and for you in particular, and Jesus' deep desire to like lead you into life, eternal life abundant. Whether you're familiar with this story or not, then my, my hope is that we each encounter the great love of Jesus in this passage this morning so that we are moved and that we are transformed by his love and so that he is made known through us, his people. So if you want to uh, turn to John chapter 13, I'm going to read the first 20 verses for us. If you want to follow along, it should be on the screen also. It reads like this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. There are essentially three things that Jesus will draw out from this act of washing the disciples' feet. Maybe more, but three that we're going to look at. And the first is... Uh, that this is a symbol of his love for us. The second is, it's a symbol of his saving and cleansing us from sin. And then lastly, it's a model for life in Christ. And, and all of these three things uh, have the united aim of leading us in the way of true living, eternal and abundant life, which is found in Jesus. So let's walk through those three things together. First, it's a symbol of his love. We see this from the very first verse. I really love how John starts this scene out for us. It's back there in verse 1. He says, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Either way you take it, it it's, it's amazing. But it, it can be interpreted to mean that he loved them all the way to the end of his life. But another way to translate that is to say that having already loved them, he loved them to the uttermost. Right? He gave those that he loved the very most love. And it's this great love that's meant to be displayed in what Jesus does for his disciples here. I mean, maybe you can imagine the scene. They're probably seated around some low tables, maybe on some mats, maybe on some cushions. Uh, they're leaning on their left arms while re- eating with their right hands, which was customary, and their feet were sort of like curved out and around, uh, reclining around behind them. And maybe you've heard about their feet and how dirty they likely were, how the streets were filthy, how they were littered with animal droppings and dirt and refuse, and how they just had those sandals and feet were like their feet were like, likely caked in the mess and the grime of the road. And it's a gross thing. It's a gross job to wash those feet. And Jesus, who's sitting at the place of honor at this table, the place of the leader at the table, the place of the teacher, the rabbi, he scoots himself back and he lifts himself up and he takes off his outer garment and then he wraps a towel around his waist, he pours some water in a basin and he begins to wash the stuff off their feet the mess, the grime off of their feet. But this job he was doing is something that none of them would have considered doing for one another. Certainly not for each other as they were peers. And they weren't even likely to offer to do it for Jesus, who is their rabbi and their teacher. Because this job, it's so gross, it's, it's reserved for the lowliest people, like for a slave. And from what I've read, some Jews wouldn't even let their Jewish slaves do this job they reserved it only for Gentile slaves who they regarded to be the very lowest yet Jesus begins this lowly work and in his like bending down to wash their feet I think he shows us how he cares for them how he cares for us right it's not just with words this isn't just uh, like an illustration it's not just a, a thing to teach a lesson right it's not just guidance it's a love that takes care of us We often look to this demonstration as like an imperative for us to serve also, to do the lowly jobs ourselves, to do it with humility. And I think that's true, and that's a good application. But I don't know how we can like authentically follow that way and genuinely serve with the same kind of humility unless we recognize like how natural it was for Jesus to do this. Because it's not merely, like I said, like an act or demonstration or lesson in humility. It isn't just for uh, getting a point across. It points ahead to the cross, right, where Jesus is going to lay down his life. He says, you don't understand this now, but you're going to understand this later. He will die the death of the lowest of the most foolish for them and for us. And, And you don't do that merely to make a point, right? You don't die on a cross just to make a point it flows from who you really are and from your heart's true posture of love towards others in the case of the foot washing Jesus demonstrates like the natural love of of, of like a parent who cares for a sick child who like without being phased would like catch vomit in their hands like that's something I could speak, Uh, from experience. It's something I never could imagine doing, but I've caught vomit in my hands and it was natural and it was fine and it was gross and I was happy to do it, right? It was even satisfying in some way to be there and to help. If you're a parent, maybe you, you can relate. I know that's really disgusting, but let's just make it what it is. It's gross. But he loves like a parent, right? Who like does things like that, who cuddles their sick child at at risk to getting sick themselves, who sets their injured child like high on the bathroom counter and then kneels down to wipe away the blood from a scraped knee or an injury. It's a natural, humble service. It's born from an authentic love of Jesus. It's genuinely deeper than one can scarcely articulate. This is the love that he displays in washing the feet. It's not, it's not just a lesson. And of course, he displays this love even more so on the cross, which he's preparing the disciples for. On the cross, Jesus doesn't just bend down and clean up the grime. Like he throws himself in the way of our certain death because it's how he loves us. He humbles himself to the lowest position and does the filthiest job and the hardest job for those he loves to the uttermost. He gives us the most love. What's really amazing about this scene, that love is amazing, but what's really amazing about this scene is that he does this for Judas also. Like John makes sure that we notice this detail. He starts out with it. He's specifically letting us in on the fact that not only was Jesus Washing everybody's feet, and not only was he washing Judas' feet along with all the others, but that Jesus was fully aware of what Judas was going to do even while he was washing his feet. John thirteen eleven. for he knew who was to betray him, that was why he said, not all of you are clean. And then again, John 13, 18, when Jesus is unpacking what he had just done for the disciples, he says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And then if you go down to the next part of the the, the passage uh, in chapter 13, verses 21 through 30, uh, it's directly after Jesus washes their feet and unpacked what he had done for them a bit. We read this, if you want to follow along. He says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And testified truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked around at one another, looked at, looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, and one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table of jesus 's side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, so that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it?" and jesus answered, "Its he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. We can be sure, from what John's telling us, that Jesus knew what he was doing. Some have read this passage, and they get the idea that Jesus essentially put the evil in Judas to do this thing. But but lest we think that Jesus has put some kind of evil uh, on Judas, I think we must recognize from what John has just told us, Jesus knew he was washing his enemy's feet. And the scripture tells us that it, after he had done it, that it, it troubled him, right? Like it hurt him because he loved Judas. It wasn't just a lesson. He loved him to the end. He loved him to the uttermost. Jesus restrains any power to stop Judas, though. And he even moves sort of the pieces forward himself, giving Judas over to what he plans to do. But his love is not withheld from Judas. His love is not blind, but it's not withheld. The love that he offers and makes known to us in the the washing of of the disciples' feet, he offers and he gives to Judas as well. Before there's any call to go do what Jesus does in this passage, there's a call for us to see this. He loves us to the end. To the uttermost, with the most deep and abiding and generous love. And for us, we can receive it like John, who refers to him as the disciple that Jesus loved, right? We can receive this like John, who calls himself the beloved, or we can receive it like Judas. Which leads us to the second thing that we should see in Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet. And that is as a symbol of his saving and cleansing us from sin. We see this, I think, especially come to light in his conversation with Peter. John 13, 6-10. I'll just read that again for us. It says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, 'What What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, this is important. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. I think Peter's reaction here is understandable. Honestly, right? Like his protest, uh, it it makes sense. He doesn't like the idea of being served this way by Jesus, uh, his teacher, and his Lord. And honestly, it's completely outside the bounds of what was socially acceptable for Jesus to be washing his feet. But Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Which I think gives us real insight into what it means to be cleansed, what it means to be saved. Last week, Reggie said that believing in Jesus means you look to him as your ultimate source of life. And if you remember in the last chapter of John, if you, if you went back there, we saw how some of the Pharisees believed Jesus was sent from God, right? But they wouldn't confess it because their hearts found at the synagogue and all that was wrapped up in that was more central a source of life for them. And we're like them. We all tend to look to something else, some some kind of idol, more than we look to Jesus as our ultimate source of life. We all tend to think that we can somehow save ourselves by some other source. But Jesus tells Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You can wash yourself all you want, but if Jesus doesn't cleanse you, it isn't enough. And this Scene isn't really about the physical washing of Peter's feet. This isn't about uh, a water baptism or some sort of sacrament or ordinance that we ought to perform. It's about Jesus. It must it's about what Jesus must do for us to truly live. Right? Because only Jesus can do it. And only if he does it can we truly have real and true life. So this is again then it's a call to rely fully on Christ. I think there's a lot that is humbling for us in that. Like, it's a humbling thing to recognize, one, that we're dirty. It's humbling to recognize that we are unclean, that we are broken, that we're unfit, that we're unrighteous. It's humbling to be honest about our failures and our sin. And it's extremely humbling to recognize that we can't even make it right. Not only are we wrong and broken, but we can't make it right, we can't make up for it, we can't work our way out of it, and there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves presentable. It's extremely humbling to realize that for you to be restored to who you were created to be, Jesus, who is God, who is holy, who is good, who is full of love beyond our understanding, Jesus has to do the dirty work and wash Ultimately, not just washing your dirty feet, but by dying on the cross to cleanse you. But it's only in letting that be that we can truly be cleansed. That we can truly like, be in Christ, because this is what it looks like to find him as our ultimate source of life. I mean, that's where we find that we are like freed from seeking our own righteousness and trying to make ourselves presentable in some way in order to find life. It means we're freed from like the burden of obtaining or maintaining some sort of status or some sort of adding up. It means that we are freed to being who he says that we are and then living from there. It means sitting in the love of Jesus for you and operating from there. It means recognizing the great love and the humble work of Jesus and thus recognizing who you really are, beloved. The final thing I want us to see in what Jesus did is how he modeled what he calls his disciples to, what he calls all Christians to, John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says this after that whole Judas part, kind of bringing it all back around together. I mean, and this is a big deal. I mean, do you hear what he's saying? Like, if we see the way that he loves us and then we love one another with that kind of love, it's by this that people will know that we are his. This is how we make the real Jesus known. We see his love for us. We see how it cleanses us and it gives us life. And recognizing who we are to him, beloved, we sort of like look up and see that this is how he loves each and every one of you. This is how he loves us all. And so we begin to see the way that he sees and we love the way that he loves. We love one another with the same love that he loves us with naturally. And Jesus says this is what makes him known. That that it's by this that we are recognized by others as belonging to Jesus. Jesus said this when he had finished washing the disciples' feet. uh, Verses 12 through 5. Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus demonstrated his love so clearly so that his disciples could love like he does. And this is what glorifies God. This is what makes him known. This is what his kingdom come looks like. It's loving your friends and loving your enemies to the end, to the utmost with his love because he has lavished it on you and me and shown us the way and has shown us that in this way is real, eternal, abundant life. When we do Christianity any other way, it gets ugly D. A. Carson writes this. He says, "Little becomes a Jesus's fo- Little becomes Jesus's followers more than humility. Christian zeal divorced from transparent humility sounds hollow, even pathetic. We know this, right?" Like we say it all the time, the church has often misrepresented Jesus. So we're striving to make the real Jesus known. And the reason that we say that all the time is because we've seen it in ourselves and elsewhere that we've tried to turn the way of Jesus into all kinds of things that it really isn't. We've often made it into like a moralistic thing by which we do little more than maybe judge and condemn. Not just like those like out there in the world, but even more so, this is how we treat one another. And we've somehow called it love while seeking life for ourselves in like our own righteousness rather than in Christ alone. And in so doing, many of you have been hurt. Many people we know have been hurt. And everybody can look in and see it's not compatible with the Jesus that we claim to know. And the real tragedy is that so many have been left not knowing Jesus because of our pathetic Christian zeal, as D.A. Carson calls it. Jesus washed his disciples' feet, humbly serving them above himself to show them and us how to treat one another. I think Paul says it so well in Philippians 2, 1 through 7. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. I've read this passage time and time and time again on Sunday mornings. It's so poignant. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is precisely what Jesus is saying and demonstrating in John 13. Jesus plainly leads us to consider how we also ought to lower ourselves and serve each other with the love of Christ in humility, without conceit or any notion that we are above anyone else. But also, like I think on the flip side, I think it should cause us to consider how to even submit to the humility of being served by others as well, right? Like with the posture of revering the one who serves us as a beloved image bearer of God along with you and no less than that. I personally struggle with that part of it. Letting somebody help me and serve me who I think is my equal or even above me somehow because my pride makes that difficult. Maybe you can relate. Like I don't want to be seen as somebody who needs something. But do I struggle and do I feel the same way like at a restaurant or like at a coffee shop or some other place where I'm being served in a more socially acceptable kind of way? Or does like my exchange of money make me feel superior enough to others to feel owed some sort of servanthood? I mean, should it not humble us to be served by another human, by another image bearer of God in every situation? Should we not always be looking out for the interest of others, even in those situations? Should it not humble us to eat at a restaurant and be waited on, something we probably all do often? Should we, at the very least, check our pride in hating that Every place we go now swivels the thing around and asks for a tip. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples to lead by example. To demonstrate his great love for them, ultimately demonstrated on the cross. To teach them to have the humility to rest in him for their cleansing salvation and for their ultimate source of life. And to lead them to love one another in the same way. By looking out for the interest of one another always and humbling ourselves to love them to the utmost with his love. And this was him demonstrating how to obey this new commandment of 34 and 35, loving one another as he loves them, because by, all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This kind of love for one another is what makes him truly known. Anybody still thinking about the tips? opinionated about tips you know tipping at a restaurant I think is pretty standard but some folks really hate the idea of giving a full tip for for less than ideal service it's kind of the traditional idea of it right you give a tip based on how the service was some of you might even be like those teachers who refuse to give like an a plus because nobody's ever perfect right And so you you can't do the 20% thing, but maybe 18% is the tippy top for you. And they should be lucky to get the 18%, you know. But these days, like, I think it's true that more and more places are asking for tips. Like, first it was the restaurants uh, where you didn't, like, traditionally give a tip, like where you're being waited on. But the count, you'd go to the counter and you'd order your food and then you'd, like, stand there and get it. But somehow you started tipping them, too. They started flipping around the screen when you ran your card. And then it's the coffee shops, right, for some of you, that makes sense. For some of us who only drink a black coffee and they just hand me a cup, you know, to go fill up my coffee thing by myself, that could be a little bit infuriating, right? Some some drive throughs will just ask you to your face if you want to give them a tip, and it's super awkward. I'm like, yeah, you just, obviously, now, you, you know? And now it seems more and more places, like, leave this tip option open and they flip it around to see what you'll do. Uh, somebody sent me, uh, I think it was Eliza, um, sent me a video the other day uh, that was joking, but it was about the kids' check-ins, saying, like how we should make it flip around and ask people for tips. So we'll be installing that. We'll talk about that tonight at the family meeting. Look, this tipping thing, it's just an example, right? And I'm not bringing it up because I have a bone to pick. I don't. It's just a daily thing that we all encounter, right? And because we encounter it so often, I think it's a good example for us to just look at and ask this question. What does loving, lo- loving like Jesus loves look like? In those situations? What makes it hard for us to love like Jesus loves in those everyday situations? Like it might be a worthwhile practice to let the prompt to tip everywhere you go. Every time somebody flips that thing around, maybe it should prompt you and serve you to see others the way Jesus sees them. Right? You see that tip screen, it goes, Am I seeing them the way Jesus sees them? That's just a good question to ask. When the screen flips around, could you and I be prompted to remember then how Jesus loves us and has served us so deeply and generously and humbly? Could it be a prompt to like then look up and think about the person on the other side of the counter and how Jesus loves them? I don't care if it changes the amount you tip them or not, but I bet it changes the way we interact with them. Maybe we should also be asking some questions about what bothers you in the church community. What ways would it, we, we maybe not normally consider serving each other? Where would it rub up against us a little bit? Maybe this year is a good year to ask, how would you serve somebody who's a Christian in this church or any church with a different political view than you? It's already started. We, we have to bring it up, right? We're going to hear about it all year. You're going to have brothers and sisters in Christ who don't see things the same way you do. Maybe when you encounter that, it's a prompt to think about how much Jesus loves you and how he loves them also. And maybe you then have a listening ear because you see them the way he sees them. Maybe it means you spend time praying for them or with them. Maybe it's just loving them generously through your differences. Maybe it's a gift. Maybe it's coffee. Maybe it's a sack of groceries or dinner together. And just enjoying time together because you're people made in God's image who have been made of family. Perhaps it's putting yourself on the, the flip side of the serving thing, on the receiving side of being served. Perhaps you can consider how you can let somebody in to help you and serve you. If only to like let yourself be exposed to the blessing of being humbled by the love of Christ as shown by a brother or sister. Like maybe you need a little help cleaning up or with a project or with a financial issue or with a marital difficulty or with babysitting and helping to change diapers. And maybe it's humiliating to let somebody in. Maybe you should. Practically, we serve each other every Sunday, like in so many ways. Perhaps it's a good practice, like when you serve and volunteer on a Sunday, to just pause and remember what you are doing it for. Like helping with Redemption Kids and youth and security and the audiovisual team and leading in music, speaking, putting out coffee, uh, picking up the tables out there, picking up the coffee, picking up some trash... All these two are meant to lead you to sit in Jesus' great love and humbly serve and love others with his great love. Like this task that you volunteer to do just for the, the hour or two on Sunday mornings, it might make the love of Jesus known to your own heart and to each other. I'm going to ask one more thing. Maybe you need to ask this about your life at, home, at the home with your most immediate family in Christ, with your spouse, with your children. It might be the hardest place of all to ask this. How can you do the dirty thing, your most loathed thing even? That's not your job to do. How can you do it in order to love and to serve your your family? Not to rub it in their face later or to get something back from them, right, but just to serve them. And in the serving, in the practice of it, can you Use it as a prompt to prayerfully remember the love that Jesus has for you and prayerfully ask that you learn to rest in it. It might be really good for you. It might really display the deep love of Jesus to your family in a way that you never could do on your own. The question is, what's a practical way that you can try His way in an actual circumstance? In what ways could you follow Paul's words in Philippians 2.45? Let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I love that so much. It is yours in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's the good news of it this morning, I think. This isn't about like having to like go get the mind of Christ and how to make yourself like him and do like, like he does on your own ability and so go practice it and do all those things. It's not about that. This is about finding that his mind is actually already yours. He's done everything needed to give it to you. He loves you. He died to cleanse you and he calls you to rest in him and to recognize who his love makes you, his beloved. And in that, you'll find that you can see others with his perspective and his love and his mind. The question is only, in all these practical ways, how can you practically stay cognizant? How can you practice resting in this mind which is yours and him? And the answer is to put others' interests before your own. Find practical ways to do that. Not to save yourself or to save them, but to stay cognizant cognizant of his great love for us all and then watch Jesus make himself known to us all we're going to enter a time of response and we'll do what we do every week the band will come and they're going to lead us through this time and you have a moment to, to pause and to pray and to even reflect and even begin to maybe think about some ways where you could just Use some way of humbly serving others or even being served as a prompt to remember his great love for you. But even begin to remember and sit in and rest in his great love this morning during this time. We're going to come and we're going to take communion. We take the the bread and we'll dip it in the wine or the juice. And this represents the body and the blood of Jesus. Which the foot washing just was looking forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. Where he gave himself for us. And he loved us to the end, to the very most, to the uttermost. He loves you like that. He died and he rose again so that you could have new life in him. And when we come, we are remembering that that is true and we are proclaiming it to one another in our action. And so if you're a Christian and you can confess that, we would invite you to come and to take and to remember and proclaim Jesus with us together this morning. You can also give your tithes and offerings in the back. You can do that online as well. Either way you do it in in this moment of reflection, it's a weekly practice for us to pause and to remember who he is. He is our life giver, he is our provider, and he is our sustainer. And we are completely free to rely on him at all times. And so that act of giving back to him is just an act of worship in that way. We don't want to let that go by or slip out of our account. Take a moment to reflect and to worship your 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 life giver and your provider and your god i'm going to pray for us and we'll move into this time Our Father, I I thank you for the great love of Jesus Christ for us, your great love for us. I thank you for your word, where we get to see Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we see you, and we see your great love. We see exactly the way you are. Thank you for this scene and this washing of the disciples' feet. for me there are just some some scenes there are some moments in scripture in stories in real life that you use your holy spirit uses to uh, open the eyes of my heart again and again to to know your great love for me and it's such a joyful thing to be overwhelmed by your love but then to like open my eyes and, and just all of a sudden like a new see the world around me and see the people around me almost like I'm looking at them through your eyes like I overwhelmed by your great love for them and I, I feel that way with this story I, uh, even this morning just overwhelmed by your love God for me but for us for your people here at Redemption Church. Lord, I pray that you would just, if your Holy Spirit would move in us even now and, and through each heart here, just show us the height and the breadth and the width, just the immense enormity of your love for us. It cannot be articulated. It cannot be fathomed. Only through Jesus Christ. Change us, Lord. Just continue to make us more and more like you. Continue to make yourself known to us and then use us to make you known to one another and to make you known to those outside of you. May we be a people who are seen. As children of God, like when they look at us, maybe they know that we are yours. Glorify yourself through your church. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: stand with me as we continue for our service. (laughs) I'm going to read this corporate confession of sin together from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your abundant mercy. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Cover